Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today is Thursday, April 13th, 2023, and we're talking to Steve Chang, who's Associate Professor in the Departments of Psychology and Neuroscience at Yale University. Steve's laboratory studies neural mechanisms underlying social interactions, mostly in primates, but also in humans and in rodents. Hi, Steve. Hello. How are you? Great. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So also with us is Tony Burgos-Robles, who is a regular on the podcast and is our local expert on brain mechanisms of social behavior. Hi, Tony. Hello. How are you? Great. And me. I'm Charlie Wilson. Uh, Steve, social behavior covers a lot of things, and we can't talk about all of them. Um, they're all interesting, though. And I'm sure uh, that uh, we can't cover even enough, but one of the most striking things about your work, and also about Tony's, I think, is the effort to define groups of brain structures that are that work together in a task, like in some kind of social behavior task. And then to go beyond just finding which are the right brain structures, which is done classically by making lesions or some equivalent thing, to kind of follow the signals that are going back and forth between them and try to figure out what they're actually doing, what their interaction consists of. And so, if possible, I would like to talk about that, at least part of the time today. And uh, so I wonder if I could get you to start by telling us something about the brain structures that you've been studying in pro-social and anti-social decision-making, which is one of the things you've done, I guess. And and how you've parsed out their interactions. Maybe it'd be good to start by saying what a pro-social and anti-social mm-hmm. decision-making are yep. before we do that. For sure. No, I, I think um, studying more than one brain region um, is very appropriate for complex behaviors like social behavior. Um, and I think it's because it requires a lot of coordination from a lot of specialized structures to make it happen. And I think even tiny bit of disruption or misalignment in one of these uh, functional domain can really throw off uh, social behavior. So in our laboratory, uh, we are focusing mostly on the social interaction side um, rather than perception of social information. Um, And for that reason, we focus mostly on prefrontal cortex and also the structure in the subcortical region, um, amygdala, that's heavily interconnected, um, which is very important, uh, kind of, some people call it limbic kind of pathways uh, that are critical for, you know, interpreting and guiding your motivated behaviors. Um, And I think for making a decision to be either prosocial or antisocial, that is strongly influenced by this kind of uh, motivation. Um, and uh, we study these circuits in social decision making for that reason. Um, in our lab, we study monkeys. Um, and unlike humans, you have to kind of tailor what is pro-social and what is antisocial for that species. Um, we cannot just impose our pro-social and antisocial behavior to animals because it's uh, almost, it doesn't make quite sense that way. You have to think about their you know, ecology. Uh, for monkeys, um, you know, like rhesus monkeys we study, they are pretty competitive. So you have to think about when is the right setting for them to express pro-social behavior or antisocial behavior. So in our setting, we study, you know, juice donation task, basically, where monkey can choose freely to 
donate juice to the other monkey in the room or waste in a bucket. Uh, sometimes they can choose to drink alone or drink together. Um, and they, have, they show this kind of preference to donate juice to the other monkey over wasting it. We call it prosocial. Um, but in the other context, whether drinking alone or uh, drinking together, because they are competitive, they actually prefer to drink alone in that setting. So we have this nice context, uh, you know, dependent uh, prosocial or antisocial preference. Um, and we can now leverage that behavior uh, to study what's happening in the neural space um, um, that guides uh, these decisions. Um, yeah. Those are very interesting topics and, you know, something that just, you know, caught my attention right away was, you know, like donating juice, you know, to another individual. I wonder if you switch it for alcohol or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like what it's going to, what it's going to look like. But, um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, like even, uh, non-human primates, you know, like are willing to just donate from what they have, right? Yeah. Um, to others, um, as a pro-social, um, behavior. Yeah, I think it's important to think about also when they're willing to be prosocial. So what makes them different from us is, you know, they are prosocial in certain occasions, but not all the time, like, um, like humans in general. Um, so they are prosocial when they know they are not really losing their own, um, rewards, own juice. So if they know I'm giving you, but I'm, therefore I'm going to drink less or something then they are not going to show that, mm-hmm. uh, especially rhesus monkey species. Um, so that's why our task has this kind of component so that you can be pro-social or antisocial in the context in which your these choices would not affect your own world outcome. So you can give or waste it, you're never going to get it, or you can drink alone or drink together, you're always going to get juice. I think that's, you might have, we did it that way because if you give monkeys to choose between your own reward and the other monkey's reward, especially research monkeys will never give other monkeys. Yeah, this. that's very intriguing, right? <laughs> because it changes, you know, kind of the, the rules of the game, yep. right? Because yep. it's not like I'm losing something by giving you something. It's, you know, like, hey, I'm obtaining this reward, but mm-hmm. hey, just for compassion, perhaps, yeah, yeah. <laughs> here's some for you. <laughs> yeah. I think from a neurophysiology point of view, it's great, too, because now you have two sets of trials where the, basically the monkey drank on both of them, and then uh, so and did the same task basically right and now you can ask where in the brain are neurons firing differently yeah when the animal is donating to another animal versus when he's not yeah and that's an important point because uh, traditionally people have had hard time trying to understand how how your neurons represent what happens on other individual uh, whether it's a good thing or bad thing because lot of tasks in the past, there always has been some confound with respect to what happens to you. You know, so if again, going back to like self and other, you know, even if you give other the juice, it's confounded with you not getting the juice, for example. So I think, um, you know, kind of first rule of social neuroscience is you want to make sure there's a unnecessary confound that's uh, introduced when you're now thinking about two individuals. Um, and I think uh, I think that's a um, kind of innovation of this test design that allows you to uh, get at that kind of clean uh, separation. So what do you find? What parts of the brain yeah. are the ones that are involved in 
being pro-social. Yeah, so mostly this kind of pro-social ancestral choices, these preferences are found in neurons in the medial prefrontal cortex. So it's not, it's in the prefrontal cortex and mostly in the medial structure, uh, where it's also often called limbic structure. And that's, uh, it's the, also the structure that has really heavy innervations and connections with you know, areas like amygdala. Um, and especially there's a structure called anterior cingulate cortex um, that's studied a lot in the past for emotion, uh, flexible behavior, even executive control. Um, and we found a specific subregion called gyrus of the anterior cingulate cortex. That area has more neurons than any other areas in the prefrontal cortex we examined that signals exclusively what happens on other monkey. So if other monkey is getting rewarded from my donation, um, there are specific neurons there only encoding that outcome. So those kind of clean separation is a very important uh, computationally because that means that signal is a kind of core separated reference signal for what happens on other monkey. Is that brain region a different one from the traditional mirror neuron areas of the brain yes. or empathy? Yes. So mirror neurons are in the in monkeys. It was discovered first in rhesus monkeys. Um, it was mostly first found in the motor areas, actually, uh, the ventral premotor cortex. Um, in Italy, in Italian nomenclature, I believe that's uh, F seven or something. And the finding is about you know when you execute an action or when you observe a similar action by someone else the neurons signal very similarly, fire very uh, similar degree. And that's why the term mirror came from. Uh, so it was in the motor domain, and then people have been finding some other regions that does this in the parietal cortex, also, re- also relate to sensory and motor domain. Um, you know, but the, in some recent rodent l- literature has also found in the ACC, the cingulate cortex, fires similarly for observing other conspecific pain to your own pain in um, uh, rodents. Right. So there is some overlap there. Even in monkeys, in this reward, uh, positive reward domain, there are neurons in the anterior cingulate gyrus that signals my reward and other monkeys' reward in the exact same way. So there, you, you can call them mirroring the reward outcome. Yeah. So in this case, you know, like we are talking more about it's not only representing information about what is happening to others or what others are doing, but, you know, like perhaps, you know, there's some emotional link, you know, associated to all this kind of signaling in all these uh, prefrontal cortical areas, which is intriguing because then we are talking about, hey, it's not only, you know, like functions uh, of cognition for the self is also about you know being able to represent in your brain what is happening to others from the emotional standpoint right yeah i absolutely agree i think these regions are not processing pure sensory information of what happens to another individual i think these are more in the domain of uh, interpretation and evaluation of what's happening Um, so i think these informations are more directly used to guide your learning, uh, for example, in observation learning case, or uh, you know, keep reinforcing to do the similar action that you know benefits others. For example, so if I you know pro- if I donate juice and that outcome is somehow reinforcing to me like vicarious reward, that means you know there's some reinforcing properties of that outcome. So that's why you're gonna keep doing it again and again. And I think that kind of 
um, kind of cognitive uh, framework, uh, I think it, these signals might be fitting into that. And it's highly related to emotion, I believe, because these areas are also uh, heavily involved in uh, emotional and affective processing as well, as well as stress. Right, you know? right, yeah. right, right. It's intriguing, you know, like you mentioned stress because um, you wonder, you know, like where do all these amazing findings you're obtaining at the single neuron level uh, from monkey studies, you know, how are they associated to uh, dysfunctions in social behavior, like um, in autism spectrum disorders and others? Yeah. And just the fact that, you know, in rodent studies, like social isolation creates stress that already kind of, you know, makes sense at the behavioral level that similar circuits are involved in many ways. I think. Right, yeah. right, right, right. So the same, it's the same brain structure that has this sort of empathetic neurons, mm -hmm. if I can call them that, whether the, whether the other uh, animal is feeling pain or feeling reward. Mm -hmm. So it's not that there's a, like a reward uh, social thing and a pain social thing, they're both the same. But the neurons probably are different neurons maybe in that structure or they fire in different ways. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, so in rodent studies, people uh, people have studied a lot in uh, anterior cingular cortex in terms of you know signaling the, the painful experience of others. Uh, other uh, rodent cone specific. Um, and also in humans, there was a famous study that, you know, found that if you watch uh, your romantic partner gets a little painful stimulus, your anterior activation in the scanner was similar kind of to when you're feeling that. So people have used this kind of pain domain to uh, link empathy quite a bit in ACC. Uh, in that region. Uh, but in terms of whether same neuron is signaling the positive outcome or negative outcome, that's a little unclear right now. Um, but that will also answer, you know, whether these neurons are caring about more like saliency of the outcome. If something's rewarding and something's painful, if those are both salient, it might respond similarly or value of the outcome. In that case, um, other, what happens to other animal or what happens, uh, positive thing happening to other animal, negative thing happening, you might see a graded response. So one evidence that we have from these structures is that when you look at, um, real, uh, this reward outcome signal, like vicarious reward outcome signal as a function of value, like how much, how big of the juice did you donate versus mm -hmm. smaller? Um, it's kind of tuned. Many neurons so tuning that some neurons fire more if the other monkey gets more juice or fire or and fire less if the monkey gets less juice. Uh, whereas, whereas other neurons show the opposite tuning. Some neurons fire less for bigger, uh, fire more for smaller. So, it, so in that case, it's possible, um, you know, same, um, the neuron might track what happens to others, whether it's positive or negative by activity uh, firing rate. So that's, all of that in a way seems like a way of detecting what's happening to the other, to your conspecific. But in the case of the decision-making, um, there's, there's actually an act. Like the monkey right. not only knows what it's going to mean yeah. to the other monkey, but is also acting on it. Yeah. So is that action, is the decision and action being generated there, or are those 
mm. neurons just informing some other structure that's going right. to I think that's a really, really important question. Um, so when we looked at some brain regions in this task, we recorded both from the amygdala neurons and the anterior cingulate cortex neurons, and we studied how these neural populations are interacting. Um, and we found a very specific enhancement of uh, coordination, um, and we use something called spike field coherence that's enhanced when monkeys are expressing uh, prosocial preference, like giving juice to the other, with, but then it was suppressed when monkeys are expressing antisocial preference, like withholding just from another. And what's funny is that the separation of this prosocial versus antisocial dependent separation of coordination uh, was very specific to only when monkeys are choosing that option. So when we give animals the exact same reward outcome to the another animal, but if the experimenters uh, chose for them, right, so we call it forced choice, then the separation doesn't happen anymore. So that tells us that um, motivation or component maybe, or pref the true, true ways of saying preference is important for the structures to uh, talk in a certain way to, to signal um, pro-social outcome or the anti-social outcome. Having said that, the final, you know, action generation is probably downstream of this. You know, these are not uh, really motor structures, um, but I think the, probably these, these pathways support uh, kind of intermediate stage that informs which output is desired. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is a signal that is specific to the decision. Yeah. Then it seems to me the decision has been made. Decision, yeah, decision, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good way to put it. So if you, decision has been made, but the, um, it's not the area that controls eye movement right. or right. controls your hand movement to choose. Right. So I think, you know, the downstream regions will read out that uh, cert certain types of choices more preferable, uh, then they will you know, that will inform the, let's say, eye movement structure to make certain choice by looking at it. Yeah, and I guess in, like, I didn't pay attention to the time scales in your graphs. I don't know if it was milliseconds or seconds, right? But we were basically talking this morning about this kind of ideas that, you know, medial prefrontal cortical areas are processing a whole lot of information, you know, most likely multidimensional information, right? That is, doesn't only mean reward, or it doesn't only mean, you know, like, yeah, you know, like somebody else got the reward, but it means, you know, a lot more. Thing is that you may imagine that, you know, if that animal is experience, experiencing something, it's being processed through these brain regions, that, you know, the memories will be encoded there. But, you know, you showed some evidence that after training the animals, if the brain region is lesioned, they can still perform the behavior later on, right? But they and cannot learn new associations. Exactly. They to prefer, you cannot develop procedural preference based on new information, but your old preference is still there. Yeah, it's still there. Yeah. And that's, you know, similar to the data I was showing to you from my lab, you know, like um, in rodents, which uh, we do a lot of behavioral tasks that need the activity of these brain regions, but then when we inhibit the brain region during memory recall, you know, like animals can do just well. But the problem is that they cannot integrate new pieces of information. You know, new learning cannot occur as it happened before. Yeah. 
So I think this structure might be very important in making an association of, you know, what is rewarding to another individual, um, you know, rather than once that association is, I'm going to store that information. Uh, so I think, you know, it's really about information processing from the perspective of other. So, you know, I, I sometimes call it other reference frame, you know, information needs to be processed. You know, this water is water bottle is yours, for example, not, not mine, right? That kind of referencing point, that kind of um, mapping between something that happens to me versus something that happens to another, uh, that kind of separation of information is probably very important for uh, this brain nation. But, uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about associations, we think of them as pretty stable, but in social behavior, there's a lot of instability. Yeah. And uh, animals that seem to be cooperating at one moment will suddenly quit doing Yeah, that. that's a great question. So the idea that, that, you know, all of this is involved in creating some kind of conditioned association, which then can go off on yeah. its own, yeah. probably isn't going to just go off on its own. Yeah. No, that's a really great question because even in our task, it's not that monkeys are 100% choosing to donate juice to the other monkey. Even within a session, uh, let's say two hours of behavior, you know, the pro-social preference fluctuates over time. It's generally stable on average, um, but sometimes they're a little more, sometimes they're a little less. Um, and this fluctuating um, uh, is, is basically a non-stationary process. And, and I think there's some interesting thing to study about this, what kind of in reason is driving this kind of uh, behavior. And I feel like just like any preference type behavior, um, um, I think, you know, it's, it's not purely fixed, you know. Um, so maybe there might be some fluctuating states underlying it with it. You know, like sometimes you feel like I want to talk to my friend, I just want to engage in social interaction. But other times you just don't want to do that. You just want to focus and read your book or something. So I think there's very interesting um, flexibility in a way there, uh, that guides your preference. It's not a, you know, fixed thing. It's a subjective preference to engage, you know. And if I'm donating yeah. juice to somebody and looking at them, I'm judging whether they're grateful for the juice yeah. or not. The minute I think they're not, right. they don't right. get any more juice. Right. Because that output now. You're doing that kind of stuff right. too, right? Because then, you know, if so, you give juice to, the, if you donate money to someone, if that person is really not grateful about it, yeah. then that action you did uh, gets kind of less preferred next but time. Even if you've established this yeah. pattern, yeah. I think a lot of times we start viewing the, the brain at, in a sort of Pavlovian way where things just get practice mm -hmm. burned into the network and then we go on right, to the next right. thing yeah. and nothing really yeah especially social behavior yeah. i think, I think in this case it. for this region uh, maybe it's better to think about it as kind of reinforcement learning framework even because you do action you get feedback and that feedback informs what you're going to do next and if it's keep reinforced by getting the good vicarious reward yeah. then you'll keep doing it but if your reinforcement gets weaker or even absent, then it will really encourage that behavior to get reduced. Uh, so I think, um, yeah, I think association in a way of kind of learning, the learning from the outcome is probably a better way to put yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I find it fascinating because, you know, like uh, we just behave in, you know, what we call normal ways, you know, out there, not being fully conscious about 
all the social information and the complexity it brings into our brains, right? But our brains still can handle, you know, like to process all that information and even, you know, tease it apart and send it to downstream brain Some regions. Some people better than others. Right? Yeah, Some yeah. people better than others. Right. You know, like, here's an idea, you know, what about in more than two individual interactions, like three individual interactions or four individual interactions. Perhaps an idea for a follow-up study, like what about if I take something from one primate, give it to another? Someone actually, right? no, so, someone has done this work, actually. So good colleague of mine, uh, his name is Ziv Williams. He's at Harvard Medical School. He actually did a kind of three-monkey version of tasks similar to mine. So a monkey has an option to give reward to this monkey or that monkey, okay? And the turns rotate. So next time, the other monkey will have to choose to give to this monkey or the other monkey and go to the next turn. And what's really interesting about this task is you have to think about reciprocity and retaliation at the same time. Wow. Because if you be nice to this monkey, that means he, this monkey will remember next time yeah. when he's choosing. Uh, but, you know, if this monkey too, if this one to reciprocate with me, but then this monkey creates potential retaliation opportunity for the third wow. monkey. So it gets very interesting like this. Um, um, but one thing our brain, especially primate brain, um, has been uh, really good at is processing lots of social information. I think uh, part of the reason is our brain evolved really strongly to deal with complexity in social situations like uh, due to group size and social uh, complexity. Right. So, um, you know, when, when primates emerged, uh, the group size became a lot bigger. So all of a sudden you have to track really multiple individuals in more complex way, not just dyadic relations, but also where you stand relative to all the others. Right. Um, and because they are living in larger groups like, uh, you know, more advanced uh, primate species. Um, so I think that inform the brain ha might have been really prioritized uh, to process social information. And that's actually one of the main reasons behind why our lab studies social functions. Uh, I mean, social behavior is interesting enough, but also I believe that uh, social situation might bring out uh, brain computations very well because that's how we evolved to deal with. Yeah. Very so intriguing. Another part of the brain that you study is the amygdala and the basolateral amygdala, and it sh appears in everything. I, I don't yeah. know how many times a year I hear about the basolateral amygdala in all different contexts. Most of them have to do with some kind of learning and very often fear learning. Mm -hmm. So does it make sense that I mean, obviously, there's some fear associated with social interactions. But do you think the amygdala's job is broader than that? Or what is that? Yeah. What, no, why does a great the amygdala question. keep showing yeah. up? So I'm, I think many people now agree that amygdala is not a fear center. But fear is just a great stimuli for amygdala. Because I think the main function of the amygdala is processing what's really behaviorally important to you, right? High behavior relevance, high behavior salience kind of information and encode that kind of, you know, uh, information into motivational value and things like that. So I think fear is such a powerful stimuli, you know, that works really well at engaging amygdala rather than amygdala is 
on dedicated for fear processing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. It goes back to, you know, like many decades ago, if you look in into the textbooks of learning a memory, you see like the amygdala as the great modulator mm. of memory formation. You know, even like um observe um what is it, hippocampal dependent um object recognition tasks that you would imagine don't involve the amygdala at yeah. all, but the amygdala is well uh, connected with the stress circuit as well, right? Mm -hmm. And if you trigger some stress, that will activate the amygdala, and the amygdala can modulate any kind of behavior, even when you may imagine it's not important, right? Yeah. So, the earliest thing I ever heard about the amygdala, which goes back probably a little bit before Tony's first hearing about it, is a study in which uh, amygdala lesions on a dominant monkey cause the monkey to give up dominance and mm -hmm. to become a subordinate. Yeah, this is a Rosefold uh, paper from 1950-something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was a very interesting paper. It actually has the best figure illustration ever I've seen. They have a cartoon of all these monkey characters and uh, how they fall down the rank. And so but that seems very strongly connected with your amygdala. Yeah, your right. Uh, yeah, and, and you can imagine that, you know, if you don't process social information correctly, um, and, and then you will likely no longer be the dominant animal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even in human, human society, the dominant person or the CEO or boss, they have to be really tuned into what other people are wanting and things like that. If they completely ignore, then there'll be a riot. You know, I think it's actually um, a very stressful position as well. Um, in monkeys, people have studied, uh, the dominant alpha male is actually really stressed all the time in terms of their cortisol level and things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the, um, in you know, I think amygdala is very important for processing social information from the right moment and sources. Um, another good example of this is coming from famous uh, amygdala lesion patient, um, SM, uh, who could not recognize uh, fearful faces well or threatening faces well, but if you tell the person to just look at the eyes and do the same task again, then her uh, uh, emotional judgment completely became normal. So it's about her not, you know, knowing to get the right information from the right social, you know, sources. So that really speaks to the importance of amygdala, not only in um, kind of emotional detection kind of thing, but really about social information, where to seek the information. Right. Yeah, that's a very interesting study. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know, it dates back to even, you know, like when amygdala lesions were performing monkeys mm -hmm. and yeah. what they call the clever busy syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, it's amazing, you know, that um, all these systems are hooked up the way they are to process all this very complex uh, information yeah. and make sense of it, right? Uh, even, again, with us being 100% fully conscious about, you know, what we just have learned or understood from mm -hmm. just uh, processing social information. Yeah. And amygdala is also interesting in terms of, since you mentioned unconsciously processing things, the latency um, of amygdala neurons firing to, let's say, strong, important stimulus can be amazingly fast. Uh, it can bypass going through the brain, uh, cortex, 
there's a you know direct highway basically through the thalamus to amygdala mm-hmm. that 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 can give you like two millisecond you know um, um, delay in firing to the time of really fearful tone or something. Yeah. yeah. So that already says certain low res information can come really fast, uh, just like. Uh, fearful faces or scary thing, you don't need high resolution information to process that. You can, all you need is low pass filter for important information. So that can come really fast to amygdala. Yeah. It's a very important point to highlight. You know, I have looked at in other studies of mine, um, latencies in medial prefrontal cortical areas, and we are talking about at least a hundred milliseconds, right? Compared to the really fast amygdala signals yeah and that's why you know like uh, we always say yeah amygdala is been processing all this information really fast send it to the cortex yeah. you know for the bottom-up processing then the cortex can integrate that information in some and make some sense of it to make that decision right yeah. and then it's not a one-way trip right yeah I mean, it's not a one-way trip the yeah. cortex goes back to exactly the yes yes it's not one-way trip right circulation of that uh is kind of unknown i mean it goes on for a while and, yeah uh, the nature of the signals passing back and forth right and it's uh, also very tricky because you know when you talk about these areas, prefrontal cortex and amygdala, it's very unclear what is top and what is down. <laughs> if you think about top down, yeah. because those concepts are really coming from the visual to motor system, where there's a you know clear hierarchy in in sequence, so that you know the bottom up or top down kind of thing made a lot of sense. But once you involve prefrontal cortex and subcortical areas, it becomes really complicated. Who's who's the boss, basically? Yeah. Who's the leading? Um, and and our work seems to suggest that really depends on you know what types of information processing uh, you're doing. Sometimes amygdala might be leading the uh, information processing and sending that information to prefrontal structures, but other times uh, it's opposite. You know, so yeah. so I think the uh, this kind of strongly bidirectionally connected area. Maybe the information transfer direction and what frequency channels they might use uh, might really critically depend on, you know, which information processing are doing. As a matter of fact, you know, like there are medial prefrontal cortical areas that even process visceral information, right? right? Mm -hmm. And you may imagine that, you know, even after the decision has been made, right, is it prosocial or antisocial? Even the feedback information is being processed constantly, you know, like getting a constant or continuous monitoring of the entire situation in an online manner. Right? Decision isn't just one thing. Exactly. Right? You can stretch that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Steve, really appreciate <laughs> oh, yeah. you joining us. Thank you for having us. Tony? Yeah, and thank you for accepting the invitation and, yeah. uh, you know, you. talking to the students today. And yeah, I had an sure. amazing time meeting with students, yeah. meeting with other faculty, giving a talk. You guys have a wonderful environment here. Yeah. Thank you. Well, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. 